matter where you find yourself uh, tonight, no matter what you believe, and no matter what you've done, we're glad that you're here. And RUF stands for Reformed University Fellowship, and we are a Christian campus ministry on campus at Wofford, and we're one of the many. We're trying to figure out how to be Christians at Wofford, how to love God, how to love others, and how to love Wofford. And more fundamentally, though, we're a community bound by the reality that before we love God, before we love others, and before we love Wofford, God actually loves us. God loves us. And so we're trying to imperfectly figure out how to believe that and to trust that and live it out on campus. Um, And I'm Matt, if I haven't met you already. Caroline and I would love to meet uh, with you for coffee or lunch at some time soon, um, especially you first years. Um, We're so glad that you're here, and especially if this is your first time at Large Group, welcome. It's good to have you here. Um, We have been going through a series exploring the nature of relationships. And uh, just a reminder, like what we've done so far, we have asked the question, what is love? And so we, we looked at that classic wedding text that reads from St. Paul, God is love. Um, and he is love because he's patient and kind. Uh, he is love in that he doesn't envy or boast. And, and then we explored not just um, that God is love, that he actually loves us. And that's our first love. And, uh, and then we talked about as we get up ca- caught up in the love of God, we have to extend that love out in the world. And so far, we've talked about how to do friendship. How do we love our friends? How do we love the world through our work? That was a few weeks ago. And then we talked about dating and marriage and sex last week. So that's what we've been talking about. And um, it's not, you might think this is like um, a coincidence or that was like kind of planned by me. I don't know. But tonight is shame. (laughs) Tonight is shame. And here's why we're talking about shame. And next week is pride. Um, So we're keeping things really light in RUF this semester. Um, I was like, all right, what can we do in the next few weeks? I was like, well, 2020, let's just keep things real dark and um, go with shame and pride. Here's why we're doing pride. Pride and shame, both of those parts of our lives that we all deal with, are the great impediments for true flourishing relationships with God and with others and even in our own lives, how we relate to our own selves. And so that's why we're talking about it. Um, And I want to be upfront about this. Um, Brene Brown, a researcher on vulnerability and a psychologist, calls shame the swampland of the soul. A swampland of the soul. I think she's quoting someone else. Um, and her book, Daring Greatly, is a book all about vulnerability, and there's a chapter on shame in there that I'm going to be pulling from quite a lot tonight, but I recommend that book to you. And anything that that woman writes is just pure gold, but she says it's a swampland of the soul. So here, I want to name this, because um, I sense last week we talked about marriage and dating and sexuality. We started talking about sexual sin, and we got into shame really fast, and I sense just the energy of the room, like we have to name up front that the blood of Jesus is the only thing that can cover us in our sin. And if we have a speck of faith and we're united to Jesus, our sin, our sexual sin, and our shame doesn't define us. I just want to say on the front end, like, in RUF, we want to be a place uh, fundamentally uh, that basks in God's grace, not polices people with God's law, okay? And that includes sexual sin or whatever else um, results, is like resulting in shame in your life. So I just want to name that on the front end. And we're not going to like go into this swampland tonight to like make our home in it, but actually to try to navigate it and that we might become better lovers of God and, and others. Okay. So that's why we're doing it. 
All right, so one of my favorite uh, movie directors is this guy named Wes Anderson, uh, along with Bennett Joyce. Um, we're kindred spirits in this, these ways. We talk about Wes Anderson movies a lot. And Moonrise Kingdom, Grand Budapest Hotel, Royal Tenenbaums. I love these movies. And I think here's why I love his movies, if you've seen them. Um, aside from the acting and the cinematography and the colors and all of his things that make his movies so beautiful, his movies are brutally honest about how life is really hard. But it also maintains this childlike innocence to it. It's always really struck me. His movies are about like divorce and addiction and depression. And yet like there's this childlike wonder and innocence to the characters. And they oftentimes the protagonists of his movies are children trying to figure out how to navigate a broken world. And it's so beautiful to me. And um, this novelist, Michael Chabon, um, who uh, wrote an article about Wes Anderson's movies in the New York Review, said this about his movies. The world is so big, so complicated, so replete with marvels and surprises that it takes years for most people to begin to notice that it is also irretrievably broken. We call this period of research childhood. There follows a program of renewed inquiry, often involuntary, into the nature and effects of mortality, heartbreak, violence, failure, cowardice, duplicity, cruelty, and grief. The researcher learns their histories and their bitter lessons by heart. Along the way, he or she discovers that the world has been broken for as long as anyone can remember and struggles to reconcile this fact with the ache of cosmic nostalgia that arises from time to time in the researcher's heart, an intimation of vanished glory, of lost wholeness, a memory of the world unbroken. We call that moment at which this ache first arises as adolescence. This feeling haunts people all their lives. Everyone sooner or later gets a thorough schooling in brokenness. It's a great phrase. The question becomes, what do we do with the pieces? Some people hunker down atop the local pile of ruins and make do. Others set about breaking what remains of the world into, be- into bits over smaller and more jagged kicking through uh, the rubble, the kids like running through piles of leaves. And some people, passing among the scattered pieces of that great overturned jigsaw puzzle, start to pick up pieces here and there with a vague yet irresistible notion that perhaps something might be done about putting this whole thing back together again. And Wes Anderson's movies in a lot of ways, it's like, well, how do we put the broken pieces of this fallen world back together? In many ways, his movies are saying, we got to go back to childhood where shame doesn't exist. His movies are all about shame. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. Um, Because one of the first effects of sin in the biblical story is running and hiding and covering ourselves and being completely wrecked by shame. And so we're going to talk about that because if we don't talk about it, we can't actually do right relationships in a fallen world. I'm going to read the passage there in your handout. And anyone else, um, I hope you have it, Zoom folks, uh, on, uh, on a PDF that we put on the, the link tree. Follow along as I read, and we're going to walk through it. 
God is not silent. He has spoken to us. He's given us his word not to give us an exam to ace or rules to follow. He's spoken to you, friends, and to me because he loves us. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This is right where we left off last week in Genesis 1 and 2, talking about the first marriage. So keep that in mind. That's important. Genesis 3, 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, God, did God actually say, you shall not eat of the tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. First lie in the Bible. For God knows that when you eat it, uh, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And the eyes of both were open and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together. And made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Then the man said, the woman whom you gave uh, to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is uh, this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock, above all the beasts of the field, and on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Let's pray that the Lord might teach us. Lord, we are glad that you have spoken to us and that your word is living and active. We know that's true because you are living and active. But, O oh Lord, our minds are busy and our hearts are restless, and we will simply not hear you unless you slow us down. And so we ask that you would, that we not would just hear your word, but that we would do your word and that we would see Jesus as beautiful. And we ask that this would be so in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we're going to manage our our way through this topic and this passage uh, with these two categories, two points. First, the cycle of shame, and then the remedy for shame. The cycle of shame, and then the remedy for shame. So let's do the first one, the cycle of shame. First, I just want to ask, what is shame? You know, like, the stigma of going to counseling is not as strong as it was for, like, my baby boomer, like, generation of, you know, my parents, um, where it's, like, kind of taboo to go to counseling in a lot of ways. And maybe it is for you. I don't know where you are on that. Um, But like we live in a more therapeutic culture where like shame is a little bit more in like the consciousness and vocabulary of our culture. 
But what is it? What is shame? There are a lot of ways to describe it, but I want to simply put it uh, this way. And I want to differentiate guilt and shame. Okay? Guilt and shame. Guilt says I did something bad. Guilt says I did something bad. Shame says I am bad. Guilt says I did something bad. Shame says I am bad. Guilt is mostly concerned with an action. Shame is mostly concerned with like identity, okay? Who you are at your core. Guilt is concerned with action. Shame is bound up in your identity. It's one of the many results of living in a fallen world. Shame can result from your own mistakes, from mistakes that have actually been done to you. Shame that, uh, that results in sinning against others, being sinned against, sinning against God. And in our text tonight in Genesis 3, um, we see that shame is one of the very first results of sin entering into the picture of the biblical story. And it's important that we understand, again, how the story began. That's what we talked about last week. Genesis 1 and 2. What do we see? What's the context? What was going on before Genesis 3? Adam and Eve were created by God, and it was all good, truly. It was all good. That human beings dwelt with God and with one another in communion perfectly, and they were dwelt uh, they were dwelt, they were dwelling with God because they were made to dwell with God, and they had perfect harmony. And that's why the, the passage says they were naked and they were not ashamed. In other words, they were fully known and yet they were fully loved, fully known and fully loved. And then Adam and Eve sinned, and then what happened? They experienced shame. Shame comes into the picture, and that did you notice? You saw that they. Uh, be, went from being naked and unashamed to covering themselves. Complete and utter vulnerability to complete and utter shame and disgrace and embarrassment to the hiding and running and covering their nakedness. Adam and Eve didn't cover themselves simply because they committed a sinful act. It's not just about, it's not, this is not really about the tree. They ran and hid because they did not want to be seen and known. Do you hear the difference? This wasn't just a transgression. They ran and hid and hid themselves and covered themselves because don't look at me. Do you feel the difference? This God who I could be free with, he's not safe anymore because I'm not worthy of love. There's a difference. Psychologist Diane Langberg puts it this way. I don't know if this is in your handout. You can look and follow along if it is. I just I threw all kinds of stuff in there. But this is what she says. They, Adam and Eve, didn't just run because of their wrongdoing. They also ran and hid because they did not want to be seen in their shameful state. They hid because who they had been, they were once glorious. They were now ruined creatures. When we feel defective, we shun exposure. The response is, look, I was afraid because I could be seen, and so I hid. I do not want you to see me. So when we feel shamed, we cannot tolerate being seen. We hide behind, we cover, we work to prevent exposure. We do not want the eyes of others upon us, and we work to hide uh, from our own eyes as well. In my work, she's a psychologist that primarily focuses on trauma of sexual abuse, in my work with victims of sexual abuse, I've, aust- I've often encountered those who have not looked at themselves in a mirror for many years due to the burden of shame they carry. Don't look at me. That's what they were experiencing. 
Shame is believing that you are not worthy of love. It's hearing and believing the lie that you are somehow defective. Not that you did something defective, that you are defective. It's an identity statement. Brene Brown, uh, in, in this book that I mentioned, she describes uh, vulnerability, not just, or uh, shame, not just as a swampland of the soul, but also as a gremlin. Do you know what a gremlin is? Who has seen the horror film, the, Sp- the Spielberg, 1984? Who's seen this? Gremlins. It's a horror movie. Uh, I don't know if I can recommend that movie from the pulpit, but like, you should just, you'll laugh a ton, like, especially guys in here that laugh at like really kind of campy horror movies. It's hilarious. Let me tell you what a gremlin is. The, essentially, this, this 80s uh, classic horror movie was about these little green alien demon creatures that would wreak havoc wherever they went. Literally, they were like little creepy elves. If you've like green creepy elves that like Lelia hates squirrels um, for calling you on the spot. She's so embarrassed right now. But there are like alien demon squirrels, Lelia, that are coming for you. And that they're coming for us. They're wreaking havoc. And so here's what she says. You have to fight off. And the, the whole goal of the movie is like, we've got to kill the gremlins. You've got to watch the movie. But it's like she says, like, you have to go to school and learn how to kill these demons and these gremlins of shame. Like you have to have the tools to fight. We're going to talk about that in a second, but shame really are like gremlins of the soul. They like, they will shut you down. And I don't have to tell you that. Like you probably woke up like that in the morning when you hear the voices of shame and these wounds that you've experienced and you've, that have resulted in lies that tell you, you aren't worthy of love. You're not blank enough. You're not pretty enough. You're not tall enough. You're not athletic, athletic enough. You're not thin enough, whatever it is. And so you believe lies of shame. You woke up there. And so you have to have tools to fight them off. She goes on. She says, <clears throat> I asked a bunch of people to provide examples of their lives, what shame was like for them. Here's what some people said. This is all different kind of like entries for her. Shame is getting laid off from my job and having to tell my pregnant wife. Shame is having someone ask me, when are you due when I'm not pregnant? Shame is hiding the fact that I'm in recovery. Shame is calling me an idiot in front of the client. Shame is telling my fiance that my dad lives in France when he's really in prison. So that's shame. How do we respond to shame? That's defining shame. How do we respond to shame? What's the cycle actually like look like on the ground? How do we experience it? Once we experience shame, embarrassment, how do we respond? Now, while this is a universal experience, shame is. So like Adam and Eve are like the prototype, the, the icon of shame. Like it's all, you feel it, I feel it. It's universally experienced. The way that you feel it though and respond to it is unique to your wiring, your age, your personality, the wounds that you've experienced in life. It's very unique to you, okay? And I just want, there's like nuances to shame. And for Adam and Eve, they, they started hiding and running. And so like them, we run and hide, but we do this in different ways. Um, I was talking with a friend in St. Louis today about this who uh, is a counselor, and he uses this paradigm. He says that we can understand the cycle of shame with three words. Wounds, lies, vows. Wounds, lies, vows. And so what he means by this, wounds... When we experience them, they influence core beliefs about God, 
about ourselves and about others. And oftentimes these core beliefs are lies based on those wounds. And once we're wounded, we create certain vows or policies in order to not experience the wounds again. So I'll work through a couple of examples here. A friend of mine asked a girl out on a date one time in high school, and here's what her response was. Ew, gross, and she walked away. True story. And that obviously created a wound. (laughs) Um, And so that was the wound, and here's the lie. The wound resulted in the lie that he must be gross, and so every time he takes a risk to ask someone out, he's going to experience rejection. They will walk away. There's the lie. Vow. Here's the vow. He then made the promise, the policy, to never let himself develop feelings for a girl or ask a girl out because he didn't want to experience the wound of rejection. Do you see this? Wounds, lies, vows. Another example. I have another friend whose dad only told her that, she, that uh, he loved her when she was doing really well or sports or school. And this obviously wounded her. And so this wound resulted in my friend being, believing the lie that she's only worthy of love when she's performing, when she's winning. And if she's not winning, she's not worthy of love. That's the lie. And so the vow, she made the vow to achieve complete perfection in every area of her life. And I know this girl still now, like the way that she looks She's got to be the best looking girl in the room. GPA has to be the highest. She can't just get into like a med school, the top med school. It runs her life. Why? She's only worthy of love if she performs high and if she wins, okay? Do you see this? Like, so we all have wounds, lies, and vows in our lives. And here's the deal. Like, at the core is the wound which results in us believing a core belief that's a lie, and then it results in these behavior patterns. So all of us are walking around really insecure and have all these coping mechanisms, and we haven't dealt with the wound, and we haven't dealt with the lie. This didn't happen in a vacuum. Wounds, lies, and vows. And so when we're cynical and closed off at friends, we've made vows to never let anyone in or ever to be vulnerable because many of you, the last time that you were vulnerable with your friend, they didn't listen well. And this become like a pattern. And so you believe the lie that you're just like, you don't have dignity and aren't worth listening to. And so you've made the, the vow to yourself, I'm just not gonna let anybody in. And you've been doing this for years. You can do this your whole life. You can do this in college. And so then when you go actually go on a date with someone, and they ask you, like, what high school was like, and high school was hard, real hard for you to let them in. Okay, do you see this? Wounds, lies, and vows. <clears throat> One of the most profound examples of this, if you've seen Mad Men, Mad Men is about this guy named Don Draper, but his name really isn't Don Draper. It's actually a, uh, a false identity that he's created for himself uh, because the his name was Dick Whitman, and he experienced so many wounds and lies and vows that it wrecked his life. And the way he coped with it, he was going to run away. And he created a completely new life, and he was this, like, advertising hotshot on Wall Street, if you know um, that movie. Like, so this is completely, um, like, running the show of his life. So the cycle of shame is powerful. 
So is the remedy. Let's go to the second part. The remedy for shame is also powerful. I want to go at it this way. How does God respond to our shame? How does God respond to our shame? First thing is this. We see that God pursues us. We run, we hide. He chases us down. In verse 8, if you'll look there, Adam and Eve um, heard God walking in the garden and they ran away and hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. That's what it says. They literally heard him walking. Like, I can't be seen. Don't look at me. I've got to run away. In their shame, they ran from God who made them. And they were saying, don't look at me when they ran away. And so in verse 9, here's how God responds. The Lord God called them saying, where are you? Now, that might, might like be a throwaway question when we read this. You've probably, like, if you've grown up in church, you've read this passage before. Of course you have. You've heard it preached. It's not a throwaway question or line. Langberg, Diane Langberg says this. They didn't just run because of their wrongdoing. They hid because they didn't want to see in their shame, be seen in their shameful state. God's response is astounding, she says. He comes and asks, where are you? And in asking that question, he's essentially saying, I want to see you. He's not just saying, like, where are you? Like, talk to me, or like, I just want to know that you're around. He's saying, I want to see you. Not to condemn you. I want to see you because you're still safe with me. God pursues us in our shame. God's response to our shame is him pursuing us, doubling down, getting closer. Think of Peter. Didn't Jesus act this way with Peter? Of course he did. We see Jesus pursuing others this way. Peter, who denies Jesus three times, he's undone by shame, the weight of his sin, and yet Jesus time and time again pursues Peter. He chases him down. The woman at the well, we talked about her a few weeks ago. She was so wrecked by sexual sin and the shame. She is so alone, and Jesus pursues her and extends grace to her and treats her with dignity when she was completely alone and isolated. This is how Jesus is on the move with people. When people run and hide, he gets closer. Any part of our life that we say, no, don't go there, that's exactly where Jesus is going. Right when we say, no, that's off limits, he's, no, it's not. I'm coming right for that part of your life because you are still safe. I do want to have the text in front of you if you'll look at verse 14 again. We're going to skip to 15 because this is the promise that I want you to hear. Verse 15, I'll put enmity between you and the woman. This is God speaking to the, ser- the serpent. And between your offspring and her offspring, I shall, he shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. What is going on? This is weird. This, like talking serpents... Eden, God, it's all strange, okay? I, I understand that. It's, it's so like mythological when we read this. In verse 15, if you hear anything, hear this. God is making a promise in verse 15. God made a promise that someone would fully and finally defeat Satan. That's the promise. I'm not making that up. You can go study it for yourself. Like everybody throughout church history agrees with this. Adam and Eve didn't know what was going on, but God was telling everyone who would listen, he's saying, look, I'm sending someone to do this. I'm sending someone to take care of sin and death once and for all. And that person actually did come, and it is God himself in the flesh. He's saying, 
the main way I'm going to take care of this problem and the sin and the death and the shame that why you're hiding and why you're running, I'm going to have to do it myself. I'm going to bruise his head. I am going to suffer in your place. God's response to sin and death and shame is by pursuing us, coming after us. Literally, God taking on flesh and invading the world that he created. He doesn't just pursue us. He also was shamed in our place. He also was shamed in our place. God's people, y'all, have always been trying to manage shame. Always. Israel developed an entire sacrificial system to try to make themselves clean because they felt existentially in their bones and spiritually and emotionally and relationally, I am dirty. I want to cover myself. But they never could make themselves clean, at least not clean enough. And so we need someone to endure our shame and wash us clean. All the lambs and goats and rituals and laws fall short, and God knew that they were falling short. He knew this, and that's why he went up on a cross to actually endure shame himself. You see, when Jesus went up on a cross... The shame in your life now will never have the last word because of the shame that Jesus experienced. Commentator puts it this way. Listen to this. This is your handout if you want to follow along. A, A baby is born to an unwed mother. Talking about Jesus here. Shameful. A child of Nazareth. Blue collar. Shameful. A man who walked the roads with women in his company. Shameful. He touched lepers, denial, uh, uh, demoniacs. Gosh, I don't know the name of that word. People that were demon-possessed. And bothered with children, it was shameful. Sold for a price of a slave, it was shameful. Arrested by religious leaders and and publicly insulted, shameful. And then dragged through the streets, shameful. Set high for all to see on a cross, naked, struck, Beard plucked out, spit upon, humiliated, erected upon one of the most shaming and torturous instruments of death in history of the world. He was shamed by the world he made. He became shame, embodied it, all could see it. He could not hide. And what was the purpose and what was the work? He transformed our shame and gave us glory, the original glory that we had in Eden with him. So let me be clear, at the cross your shame died. Your shame died at the cross, and it will never have the last word of your life. So I I did two weddings back-to-back. I was actually childhood best man, did his wedding two weeks ago in Alabama, and I was in a wedding this weekend. And every time, y'all know this, like when the bride walks down the aisle, she's in a white dress, everyone's standing up, and the groom looks at his bride walking down the aisle, and what, what does he do? How does he respond? Most often than not, he starts crying, right? And my friend Stuart uh, completely was undone by the sight of his now wife. And I was struck by, I'm always struck by this um, in weddings, obviously, um, and being a pastor and thinking of the picture of Jesus and his bride, the church. Um, And I was thinking about this talk, like tonight, 
when she was walking down the aisle. And I was thinking about um, the marriage supper of the Lamb that is heaven. Heaven is going to be a heavenly wedding um, where the people of God will not be dirty. The people of God will be just as pure as Davy was when she walked down the aisle. And Jesus will look at us as Stuart, my friend, was looking at her. And what's crazy about this is like the, the white robe and dress and garment that you and I will be wearing when Jesus looks at us at this like cosmic wedding. You can read it. It's in, in Revelation 19. It's the summary of it. Is that like robe, that status of white, clean, pure, holy, righteous was given to you. And it was given to me. And the cross makes it possible because you can never make yourself that clean. You can never get rid of your shame. Someone else has to do it in your place. And it's the bridegroom himself. He says, I'm going to do it for you. At the cross, he says, don't punish her, punish me. Don't punish him, don't cast him out, cast me out. I don't want shame to have the last word over my people. Let it have a word over me and condemn me. Do you see this? So at the heart of the gospel itself, where you can have absolute purity, absolute like death of your shame, is like speck of faith, trust, childlike trust in in Jesus Christ himself, like the heart of the gospel. It's returning and, you know, going full circle here, like going back to our first love. That's how our sin and shame is truly dealt with once and for all. The John who wrote Revelation says this, This is the the sort of like vision he has. He says, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. In case this seems too good to be true, let John say it to you. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. And it was granted her clothing, it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright, white, and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is where we're going and this is how we get there. I want to say, I want to say two things by way for us to kind of continue to chew on this as we go. This is by way of application. Okay, so with shame, I'm going to like get very practical with you. With shame, I realize that when you experience it, all you feel is discomfort. You don't know how to differentiate between shame and guilt and like Holy Spirit conviction, okay? Those are the three, I think, but you just feel the discomfort. That's what I feel. So it's very hard to differentiate in the moment what is from God and what is not from God. And what is from me and my past and the world, it's all just very foggy and uncomfortable, okay? That's, that's your experience. That's my experience. I want to encourage you and just say, it's just going to be messy. It's just going to be messy. And it's not me being pessimistic. It's just being realistic. I also want to say the primary way to differentiate between God's voice 
and someone else's voice with shame is in Christian community. Especially when people know you and they know your thought patterns and your wounds and your lies and their vows and they will interrupt you when you start doing that. Like, nope, not from Jesus. You're doing that condemnation, condemnation stuff and Jesus dealt with that on the cross. Stop. That's what a friend does. And you need those friends because it's all uncomfortable when you wake up in the morning and you can't go to sleep because all the crap that is in your head and it's so disorienting, okay? You need people. Carolina here, we want to help you. It's all very uncomfortable. So you need, to, you need the tools to differentiate. What's from God? What's not from God? What are the lies? And how do I actually trust God's voice? Here's, how you can, here's one like tip. You can actually can hear God's voice, like Holy Spirit conviction. To like, he's trying to like clean you up and make you holy that you might repent and follow Jesus. The fruit of the Spirit, God's law, the scriptures, context of the local church and community. He's given us the tools. He hasn't promised that it's going to be easy. Okay? I just want to encourage you in that direction. But I hope that the Christian community that you have, this last thing I'm going to say. I hope that it's a community that just won't say, hey, I'm going to help you figure out those voices, but we'll say what I just said earlier. Jesus has dealt with this. Get you some friends that will say that Jesus died for you when you admit shame to them, please. And go to churches where pastors actually say that to you. You need someone to look you in the face and say, Jesus died for your shame. So let me say it. Jesus died for your shame. And he's silenced it and will never have the last word. And when we lean into this and get honest about it, maybe we can learn how to love God, love others, and love Wofford, and um, be better lovers in general. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for your word.